0: Amen. Thank you, Terry. Let me say uh, before I start that uh, one of the ways that we should thank God for how he's blessed our church is um, a lot of the, the whatever, whatever word you want to put to it, success or strength of our church is not just uh, the, the pastors and the people who work here, but uh, the leaders, the men who as elders and deacons and the men and women who lead in our church. We are truly, truly blessed by many godly, faithful, talented people. Uh, and you see that you see that on display with Terry there, so thanks Terry for doing that for us. We are continuing this morning in a series in the Gospel of Mark that we're going to be doing for the better part of the school year. Hopefully that doesn't intimidate you, there is a lot here. Uh, I will apologize in advance for the way that we lied to in the worship folder where we said in the proclamation of God's word that a small portion of God's word will be explained and applied, because if you look over, we're going to read 22 verses this morning. So you're going to have to follow along with me as we make our way through the majority of the second chapter of Mark here because, and I'll explain why we chose to read all this, but there are really three scenes and they're linked together in significant ways. And so if you'd follow with me beginning in Mark chapter 2 verse 1, if you're at home it'll be on your screen. Uh, If you would rather just read along with me it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Let's read together uh, this, this wonderful portion of God's word to us. So hear God's word. And when he, that is Jesus, had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. This is my favorite part. And saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. He was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, that is Matthew. We're going to call him Levi. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Notice this phrase, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, they said to his disciples, why does he eat? With tax collectors and sinners. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Okay, these three scenes here put together are not only found in each of the three synoptic Gospels, but in each case they are grouped together in the same way. That is significant because often, if you're familiar with the Gospels, material gets Moved around and relocated thematically in different places. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all saw this as one unit, which is why we read it all together. It's meant, it all goes together. It's meant to be one unit, and the, the meaning of it, the intent of it, is to help clarify for you and I Jesus' ministry. Did you notice how many times he does something and then they question, like, what's he doing? That that doesn't quite and then he has to clarify exactly what he's doing in each of the three cases. Why don't wait, why are you saying forgive sin? Wait, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you right? Why don't you fast? We're confused. The people were confused about Jesus. And here this material is meant here at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew to clarify, to bring clarity to exactly what Jesus has come to do and why he's doing the things he's doing. The crowd say, We've never seen anything like this, verse 12. And as wonderful as all of it was, it was so new, it was so different, it was so completely unlike anything they or we had ever seen or known, it might easily be misunderstood. And at the same time, it is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial to get Jesus right. Because you can't get God right unless you get Jesus right. And these verses help with that. That is Mark's intention, that is the purpose of this material. And so here as Mark continues to lay out his gospel for us, Mark's good news clarified here for us is that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Now for some that is the best news imaginable. For others it's a threat. It's dangerous. The question for you and I as we come here this morning is, what about you? Which is it for you? Jesus is a friend of sinners. Is it good news or does it feel threatening to you? Because what you see in this text, in each of the scenes, there are three scenes, and in each scene there's something unique and special that's being revealed to us. There is a lesson that we're being taught here in verses 1 through 12, and here's the lesson, Jesus came for sin. And then there's a leaning that we're, that we're, you know, made aware of in verses 13 through 20, 13 through 17. And the leaning is, because Jesus came for sin, guess what? He came for sinners. And then there's a lifestyle. And the third, about the, unshr- the shrunk, you know, unshrunk cloth and the new wine and new wineskins, really shows us the lifestyle of those who are sent, as Jesus has been sent, into the world to befriend sinners the glory of God so the leaning excuse me a lesson and a leaning and a lifestyle and I like when they all start with the same letter so the spirit is moving this morning let's let's get into this together okay first so this first scene is very familiar if you're familiar with the bible it's the scene it's the healing of the paralytic and it contains an important lesson and again here's the lesson Jesus came for sin we need to be saved from our sins not just our circumstances And therefore, the main thrust of Jesus' ministry is to forgive sins. That's what is being taught here. He has authority, we're told. you see that word? It's very important. He has authority. It's a theme in these first few chapters of Mark's gospel. Jesus has authority. He can command evil spirits, and they come out of people, right? He can speak to the natural world, and it obeys him. He can heal the sick. He has authority to do all of these things, but the main function of his authority is to use it in the world to forgive sins. That's what he says very clearly here. And I'm going to be really short because we've dealt with this over the last few weeks, so you can go back and listen to those sermons if you like. But here's what I want you to see. This man was lame. His legs didn't work. And as Jesus was teaching in this house, his friends... Have this idea. We got to get our we got to get our guy to Jesus, and so they try to get in the front door, and it's so crowded they can't get up to where Jesus is, and so their only option is to climb up on the roof of the place where he's teaching, and rip the roof apart. It's funny, Tony Ellswick, I told you he's preaching down the Sebring like he's stuck on that. He's like, I'd be so mad if somebody came into my house and like started ripping my roof apart. Like he, I don't even. I think that's what he's preaching on this morning. I don't. I don't he was just really bothered by that for some reason. But I mean, these people are like ripping the roof back. And lowering, Jesus, lowering this man down in front of Jesus, and Jesus' response to all of this was so unexpected. That, that's the point. He says in verse 5, he sees this play out. It's obvious this, this man has a physical disability. He's lowered down in front of him, and yet here is Jesus' response. It's so unexpected. He says in verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. Now think how out of place that was. Think of how unexpected that was. His friends brought him to be healed. But Jesus didn't heal him, not at first. Instead, he forgave him. And it prompted some of the scribes, the Bible teachers who were there, to begin to question in their hearts why Jesus would respond this way. Because they knew that the Bible taught that only God could forgive sins. And so they were very confused and very disturbed and very upset. And they were exactly right. It's an obvious claim to divinity on Jesus' part. He's saying, I am the God who can forgive sins. His actions here were meant to reveal who he was, that he was, in fact, the creator. I, I have authority, he says, on earth to forgive sins. He's revealing who he was, but he's also revealing why he came. And listen again to what he had to say here. It's really great, verses 8 through 10. He says, why do you question these things? For which is easier? And this it's a... It's a question that really is meant to be answered in your own heart. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? I mean, for you, which is easier? Which is easier for God to do? Is it easier for God, do you think in your mind, for him to just kind of craft your life into the circumstances that you want, or is it easier for him to forgive your sins? And the lesson here is the hardest thing for God to do is not to make your life turn out the way you want it to. The hardest thing for him to do is to make it so that you could be forgiven of your sins. He says, which is easier? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, this man's friends brought him to Jesus to get his legs fixed. But Jesus said, it's no good for your legs to be fixed if your soul is not fixed. And that's, that's the big deal. Jesus is saying, there are doctors who fix legs. But no one No one can fix the soul but God. No one can fix the problem of sin but the one who's made us. And so that's the lesson. Excuse me. The lesson is your main problem. My main problem is sin. It's not your feelings or your circumstances. Jesus Christ came into the world to deal with our sins. He died upon a cross, condemned in our place, taking upon himself the just sentence our Transgressions and rebellion deserve. He endured cosmic alienation from God, but because he shed his own blood, he is able not only to turn and say to us, Your sins are forgiven, but he's also able to turn to us and say, Rise and walk. Both. But what we need to understand is that the one flows from the other. One is primary, the other is secondary. Romans 5 says that death entered the world through sin. So, it gives us these two categories, death and sin. And it says, Death is the symptom, sin is the real disease. And it's important to remember that because it affects the way that you think about your life. Most people who end up in my office wanting to talk to me about things, they, most people think their problems are circumstantial, and they hardly ever are. You know, you might think, if I could just get a different house, or if I could get a different spouse, or You know, if my kids could just get into this school, then I'd finally, everything would be okay, I'd finally be happy, and I, you know, and what I have to say to people is that is not the source of your unhappiness. It affects the way you approach God. Most people, most people want Jesus to change their life, change their circumstances, fix their legs, but Jesus came to save us from our sins, and most of the time, the only way that he can save you from your sins is to refuse to save you from your circumstances, but it also affects the way you shepherd your heart in others. I, mean, I love it. I love it when people ask me, um, "How can I pray for you?" What a wonderfully kind thing to do, right? And people and people ask me a lot, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. You guys are really great about praying for us, and I and I'm and I marvel at that. But I've noticed even myself. But when I ask it of other people, I've noticed more times than not, I've noticed my answers have more to do with my circumstances than they do with my character. And so, and, and the same thing when I ask other people. So I might say, you know, well, pray I could figure out my schedule better so I have time for all my tasks. It's a fairly typical prayer request I might make. But I don't say, what I don't say is, you know, I'm, I'm so busy, I can get really busy, pray that I would be curious about why I'm so busy and be quick to repent of pride or people pleasing that's making me busy. There's a difference, do you see? It's subtle. Or, or, um, or somebody's a, somebody asks about praying for one of my kids, and so I might say, you know, uh, Canaan, my oldest, is graduating from Florida State, December, go Knowles. and so, uh, man, that didn't get a chuckle or anything. <laughs> it's a tough crowd. Whoa, whoa. So, you know, if you say, how can I pray? I might, I might say, you know, uh, you know, parent gets anxiety. Pray that, you know, he's graduating. Pray that he would get a job lined up, you know, or whatever the case might be, so he can get off my payroll and as fast as possible you know just pray that that works out instead instead of saying something like you know pray pray that my son canaan would have the humility to hear from god about what's next and then the courage to obey no matter what so it's subtle but there's a difference and you got to know you got to know the lesson here is that jesus came for sin he came to save us from our sins okay that's the lesson. But here's one application before we move on, because I do think this is an application. I don't think you ought to build a whole sermon around this, but let me just say this to you as we look at this first part, of this chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you want an application, here's my application to you. Bring your friends to Jesus. Parents, get your friends to Jesus like these people. Let me say it this way to you. Get you some friends like this that will take you to Jesus. Jesus. Right? Do you see what it says? It says, he saw their faith. You need some people in your life that when you don't have faith, they have faith for you and they do everything they can to get you to Jesus. A true friend doesn't cast themselves in the role of savior in your life. They take you to the savior. Be a friend and get friends who act this way, who say, I got to get, I've got to get this person to the feet of Jesus as fast as I possibly can, because he is the savior. Amen? Secondly, There's a second scene. And the second scene is the calling of Levi. This is Matthew, if if you're unfamiliar. But we're going to call him Levi because that's what he's called here. And this is verses 13 through 17. Here we see a certain leaning. Now, I don't know what else to call it. It started with an L, so I went with it. Okay, But what I mean by it is an instinct, a propensity. Jesus came for sin, therefore he came for sinners. He called Levi here, a tax collector, as one of his disciples, verse 13, right out of the tax collecting booth. It's hard to imagine what a scandal that would have been to the Jews of that day. Tax collectors were the worst kind of people. They were greedy, dishonest, they were traitors, they were Jews in league with Rome. It's hard to imagine a bigger sinner. So whatever that kind of pariah would be in our culture, I could list some things, but there's really no need. Imagine the biggest sinner you could think of Maybe it's you. Like Paul said. But Jesus wanted him for one of the twelve. Now just think about that. And then what I love is in the very next part. After he calls Levi, there's a dinner party, and it's implied that it's at Levi's house. So here's what I want you to see. Levi was so overwhelmed by Jesus' choice of him, by the grace that that Jesus would show to him. He was so used to being cast aside that when Jesus said, I want you, he got so excited that the only thing he knew to do was to go get all of his tax collector buddies and all the other sinners he ran around and said, you got to come meet this guy, so I'm going to have you all over to my house so he can meet you and you can meet him. Isn't that awesome? And they have a grace party at Levi's house. And all of his friends came and many tax collectors and sinners, it says there. And this is my favorite verse 15. It says, for there were many who followed him. Do You know what that means? It's describing the crowd surrounding Jesus all throughout his ministry, that it was made up primarily of this type of people, the scribes and the Pharisees. They see him eating with these deplorables and they're offended because they did not understand the mission. They hadn't learned the lesson. The lesson from the previous scene. So here's what we learned. Tax collectors and sinners were drawn to Jesus. There were many of these kinds of people who followed him. The scribes and the Pharisees not so much. They kept their distance. Uh, Jesus's teaching and ministry attracted the irreligious people. It offended the religious people. And at the same time it says that the scribes and the Pharisees Notice that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. So the language suggests there that this is not just a one-off thing. It was his regular practice. It seemed to be his company. He seemed to prefer the company of the wrong sort of people, at least in the mind of the right kind of people. Don't get the wrong idea, though. Jesus didn't avoid the religious leaders. He loved them, too. He wasn't self-righteous about the self righteous they were invited too the issue here is that not that they were weren't invited they were invited they just chose to stay away because he refused to exclude the riffraff and they couldn't handle that so the question is why why were tax collectors and sinners attracted to him and scribes and Pharisees offended and why did he seem to have this leaning towards people like Levi and his friends and the answer answer is actually here Jesus gives us the answer down in verse 17 when they start to question this practice of eating with the wrong kinds of people, that he says, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now, what does that mean? And we have to be careful not to misunderstand here. Jesus is not saying that some of us are spiritually healthy and some are spiritually sick. What he's saying here is we're all spiritually sick, but only some of us know it. It's not that some are sinners, and some others are righteous. We're all sinners, right? This is what the Bible teaches very clearly. There is none righteous, no, not one, not one. But only some people know they're sinners. Others are still pretending, trying to pretend that they are righteous. He labeled, he labeled the tax collectors as sinners. And you should see these, the, those words. They're sinners and righteous. They're really meant to be in quotations here. He labeled the tax collectors as sinners. Not because they were really, really bad people, but because they knew they were sinners. And he labeled the religious leaders as the righteous. Not because they were actually righteous, but because that's how they thought of themselves. They thought of themselves as being righteous. But the truth was, both the sinners and the religious leaders were sinners. But only the sinners knew it. And that's why they were drawn to Jesus. And that's why he was drawn to them. Because they were full of spiritual reality, see? These were the people that they—they got it. They had it going on. They understood what was happening here with Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. They saw themselves rightly. They knew how much they needed Jesus' grace. And they knew that Jesus had come for sinners. He came for those who knew that they were not right with God and had no hope of fixing that problem without God's help. Because the kingdom, we're told, belongs to the poor in spirit right? People we would call sinners. Here's one of the implications. This should rock our boat a little bit, okay? People that we, even people that we would call, quote, sinners actually have a spiritual advantage over those we would call righteous. There's even a place in Matthew where Jesus said, and this is one of those verses where you need to look it up because you probably won't believe me that it's in the Bible, but Matthew 21:31. in case you don't trust me, it's there. Here, listen to what Jesus said. He turned to these people at one point and he said, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. They're first in line. And you're at the back because the kingdom is grace. And if you're a sinner, it's simple. You confess your sins because you know you're a sinner. You confess your sins before God and you trust in Jesus. The problem is, if you're righteous, if you think... If you think of yourself as righteous and not a sinner, then the first thing that has to happen, the first work of God is that you have to, he has to work in your life in such a way that you have to kind of stop thinking of yourself as righteous and start thinking of yourself as a sinner. You have to become a sinner. you got to be convinced that your righteousness is not enough to save you. You have to begin to think of yourself as a sinner before you can confess that sin and believe in Jesus. And that's a much harder project. It's why the others were getting in ahead of those who were trapped in this Sinners know they need grace. The righteous still falsely believe they found a way to avoid it. Jesus came for sin. He came for sinners. That's the gospel. But it's only good news, you see, if you think of yourselves as sinners. If you're one of those who thinks of themselves as a sinner. If you don't, if you don't see yourself a sinner, then it's an offense. It's an offense. Grace is love for the undeserving. It's love for the undeserving. And so Jesus' ministry and his message communicated this. Here was what Jesus came to tell these people and to us. God loves you. He has come all the way to you to embrace you. There's nothing you could do, so here I am to do it all for you. I will bear the guilt of your sins in your place. I will labor under the weight of God's law and be obedient in all of the ways that you have failed. I will take all of your sins so that you can have all of my righteousness. I will endure your punishment so that you can have my reward. And it's absolutely free. There's no strings attached. All you need is need. All you have to do is admit you have no strength, that you have no righteousness of your own, it's like, he, this is kind of a silly way to say it, but it's like he, it's like uh, he passed a piece of paper in class to these people, and there were two boxes on the piece of paper, and one was you could check for sinner, and one was righteous. And if you check the box that says sinners, Jesus says it's all yours. It's all yours. And for these people at Levi's house here, their whole life. To check the center box, they knew themselves. To check the center box meant that they got left out. But now it was the very thing that got them in. Their whole life they've been told, you're unworthy, you're less than. And Jesus comes along and starts to talk about grace and he says, you know what? In God's sight, everybody's the same. The healthy and the sick, they're both sick. The good and the bad, they're both bad. You don't have to be healthy. You don't have to be good. You just have to know you need help. That's how you get healed. When you turn to Christ in your needs. Spurgeon used to say, it's one of my favorite little sermons he preached. He said, if you're gonna throw a feast, if you're gonna throw a dinner party, throw a feast that you really want people celebrating at, you gotta make sure to invite the beggars. Because if you invite poor people, if you invite the homeless, if you invite the beggars, they're gonna cheer for every dish. Look at that broccoli casserole. Man, those green beans look amazing. Prim and proper old ladies may pick suspiciously at the food and complain about the service. <laughs> here, here at Matthew at Levi's house, the sinners are feasting. They're toasting the kingdom. They're cheering at every plate. And we see the righteous, the righteous there are asking to see the manager to complain about how they're being treated. Grace is only good news to those who know they need it. Now let me apply this before we move on to the last part. This is where, as they say, you go from preaching to meddling a little bit. So let me, let me do that and be your friend and be the leader of this church in saying this. Tax collectors and sinners flock to Jesus because it was safe to be a sinner around him. Do you know what that means for us? It is important that Redeemer be a place where it is safe to be a sinner. If we preach and live grace... Here's what we should expect to happen. If we truly are preaching and living grace, then sinners, sinners, those sinners will be drawn to our church. And sometimes religious folks will be offended. And that's got to be okay. Because it's the way it was with Jesus. The people who couldn't stomach sinners, they were on the outside looking in with Jesus. And I just want to say, if you don't like sinners, don't surprised if you end up feeling like you're on the outside looking in here too. I kind of hope that's the case. Ray Ortland put it like this. He says, the deal breaker, the deal breaker in gospel community is not sin. It's not failure or weakness, but words or behavior making the church unsafe for other sinners. That's great. He says, the greatest threat to a typical church is not the adulterer, but the gossip. And when I say that this would be a place where it's safe to be a sinner, I mean that it's safe to be honest. It's safe just to, I don't know why fly your, fly your freak flag came into my mind, but that's not exactly what I mean. <laughs> where it's safe to just say, like, I'm a mess, right? I'm a mess. And I need Jesus. And I keep trying to do it all on my own and I keep just making a bigger mess of things where it's safe to to walk in the light like that and be honest about your struggles and your, your weakness and so forth. Ray Ortlund again, he says, the social environment of a church can easily become infested with shaming, posing, blaming, finger pointing, fault finding, the opposites of a gracious acceptance. That, he says, is functional heresy. In a gospel culture, sinners are safe to own their own problems and grow together in the Lord. And so the leaning, the leaning of the church towards sinners is not conflict avoidant. Please don't get that. Grace doesn't make us conflict avoidant. I'm talking about something where there's brutal honesty and brutal truth telling. And I'll be honest, it is a trapeze act for sure. Do you remember the trapeze at at uh, at the circus? You have to swing out. And let go and trust that there will be somebody to catch you. But it's okay because even if, you, even if you miss, even if you fall, even if you dare to walk in the light, even if you dare to bear your soul and there's no one there to catch you, the good news is, is that the courage, the courage to do that, you, you, you jump out there and you do it. And even if somebody else lets you down or if it doesn't go the way you need for it to or if there's failure on whatever part, you fall into the safety net of God's grace. The grace of God is there to catch you. But we see the leaning okay we need to finish thirdly the third scene i told you there's a lot here is this question from john's disciples and the pharisees about why jesus did not teach his disciples to fast and here we see this is verses 18 through 22 and here we see a lifestyle there's a lifestyle if jesus came for sins and therefore came for sinners if he is a friend of sinners then we should be too and that means there's a mission that i've already kind of alluded to that that we must join and it requires what we find here is that it actually requires a balance in our life of feasting and fasting. So there are two metaphors that Jesus uses in these verses to answer their question. Why don't your disciples fast? And he, he talks about a wedding in verses 19 and 20. And then he talks about wine in verses 22 and even above that. So let's deal with the last, the last one of those first. The gospel here in verse 22 is called New Wine. So this message, this ministry that Jesus has brought is new wine, and new wine, he says, calls for new wineskins. If you try to put that new wine in the old wineskins, then it would burst those skins. And so the gospel, he's saying, is something new, and it requires a radically different and new way of life. That's the teaching, that Christianity is something different than... The irreligion and the religion of the people that are coming and surrounding Jesus and then trying to repent of both of those things to come into this new movement. They're, those are the old wineskins. The irreligion of the tax collectors and sinners, we could say modern secular people, or even you know people that are just generally it's true of the spirit of the age. But there's also the old wineskins of the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, those are the typical churchgoers, or even people who are deconstructing the religion of their childhood. And so on the one hand, we learn here that Jesus' ministry was characterized by feasting, not fasting. Matthew 19, 11, I got that wrong. Matthew, dyslexic Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Remarkable. Think about that. When God came into the world, how did he come? Eating and drinking. What? Who thought that? Nobody thought it would be that way. The son of man came eating and drinking and they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now there was an uncomfortable amount of celebration and revelry, at least for some. I mean, John's disciples fasted. Jesus' disciples feasted. And that's the question, why? And they feasted while John John and his disciples fasted because in the coming of Jesus, they had been thrown into the midst of the turning of the ages. It had now become the time the prophets spoke of when it says in Amos and other places where literally instead of water flowing out of the mountains, wine would flow out of the mountains. I don't even know how that works. But that's, that was the image, that there would be this abundance of joy. There's another prophetic image, the wedding of God to his people. And everyone knows that a wedding is a good time to cut loose you combine a wedding with some wine, and it's sure to be a good time, right? And those two things are here together. So according to Jesus, it would have been improper for his followers to greet his coming with the strict, joyless, dry puritism of the Pharisees. Grace demands a celebration. Hello. You with me? Grace demands a celebration. Tim Keller wrote a book on the parable of the prodigal son. A twist on the, on the, the, the uh, title of that. He called it the prodigal God because he said there is a prodigality to grace. There is an excess. There is an extravagance in, the, in grace, by definition, that should be mirrored in our joy. Feasting honors grace. Right? Grace is honored in feasting. We read Deuteronomy 12 Friday. I hope you're reading with us at least four times in that text. It says, You shall eat and drink and rejoice before the Lord. And Rick Lear said, There you go. Right? Thanks for tracking with me, Rick. You shall eat and drink and rejoice before the Lord. That's worship. That's the context of Deuteronomy 12. It's a duty. It's a command. C.S. Lewis's famous line comes to mind, joy is the serious business of heaven. Life with Jesus is feasting. And joy is an important aspect of evangelism. Jesus' dinner parties were gospel witnesses to, to display the joy and the wonder of eternal life, which is available not just in heaven, but to all who repent of their sins and of their righteousness and come to Jesus right now. But the other thing is, when we do that, we're practicing for heaven. Because what will heaven be? The Bible says heaven will be that end-of-time feast that will hold power to make all of the sad things that we know now become untrue. Isn't that amazing? But here's the thing. It's important to learn from the text. We're not in heaven yet. And Jesus is no longer here with us. We are living through that time in between. And he says here in the text that his disciples won't fast as long as they have the bridegroom with them. That's why they're not fasting. They're feasting. But then he says, but there'll be a time when he's taken away. This is verses 19 and 20. You can look there. He says, but when, when the bridegroom's taken away, then they will fast. And that's us. That's you and me. That's where we are without the bridegroom waiting for his return. And so that new wine of grace cannot be contained in the old wineskins of religious asceticism and striving, but neither can it be kept in the old wineskins of irreligious excess. We feast because the kingdom has come. We fast for the kingdom's coming. And in that same passage, in that same passage in Deuteronomy 12, where it said, you know, eat and drink and rejoice before the Lord, here's what it says, and I I don't know how many times, take care. Be careful to obey. Take great care. In other words, be serious about obedience, be thoughtful, be intentional, be sober-minded, watch yourself, stay in control. Peter says, be sober-minded and watchful because evil is prowling and you are the prey. You are the prey. And if you put your head down and stop paying attention for one minute, as soon as you do that, out of the tall grass lunges the lion. And by the time you see him, guess what? It's too late. And so grace is not only honored— by celebration but also by discipline titus 2 11 and following that by a willingness to say no to fleshly desires for food and drink because there's a mission that demands our urgency and our seriousness and our sobriety and our discipline and i know it sounds like i'm talking out both sides of my mouth i'm only telling you what's here the lifestyle of grace, the way of grace, avoids somehow this lifestyle that avoids both asceticism and excess. Celebration, we, we celebrate, but we also maintain discipline. There's fasting and feasting. That's the target. That's the lifestyle. In the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Father Christmas brings gifts and food and wine to the animals. Do you remember this? And they begin to celebrate because the snow is thawing, and, uh, and Aslan has come, and the White Witch comes upon one of their... Woodland celebrations and she cries out in anger. What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? And here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. That is the nature of evil. To suck all of the joy out of the world. And it's absolutely, it's the absolute worst when it is done in the name of God. That Woodland Feast was not self-indulgent waste. It was a proper celebration of Aslan's coming in winter's thaw. But let's be honest, okay? <laughs> if there's a balance to be maintained for our church, I wonder, I wonder if it is not true of us there's far more feasting than fasting. I know I've, I've gone to a lot of parties in the last month or two baby showers and weddings and stuff we we do a lot we if there's a balance perhaps perhaps we could acknowledge that we are great at feasting and i am so grateful for that we are that is an amazing ministry of this church i think but possibly we could do with a little more fasting a little more discipline a little more intentionality fighting for hunger excuse me, fighting for the higher hunger of joy in God and not just his gifts, denying ourselves as protection against the deadening effects of innocent delights in order to preserve the sweet longings of homesickness for God. Because here's the thing, all feasting is fasting because it falls short in comparison to the joy that will one day be ours. But all fasting is feasting because in doing it, it brings firsthand knowledge that God is better than food and wine and everything else. Jesus is a friend of sinners and hey that's me right and that's you right hey that's us so let's party and he came to seek and save the lost and he calls us to join him so let's get after the mission with urgency and creativity and courage and self-denial and seriousness and perseverance saying along with the psalm, the songwriter, Jesus, Jesus, what a friend of sinners, Jesus, lover of my soul, friends may fail me, foes assail me, he, my savior, makes me whole. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So what great news for us this morning, Father, of your sending your son, the Lord Jesus, into the world to save sinners. And if we would be honest, of which we are The greatest. Every one of us in the room rivals the Apostle Paul for the title of greatest sinner. But it's so easy to lose the courage to be honest about that truth and to try to put on some fig leaves to cover up our nakedness and to make others and even ourselves and and most of all you believe something other to be true of us and so I pray you give us the courage in this moment here at the end of this service in this moment right here to just sit in the acknowledgement of the reality of our lives that is Terry so uh, so eloquently said earlier that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God deserving only wrath and hell That we have no righteousness with which to clothe clothe ourselves. We are naked before the piercing eye of God's justice. And the only hope is that we would turn away from ourselves to the one who has bathed us in his blood and clothed us in the robes of his righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that requires us not only to come out and repent of our sins and move toward him in his grace, but even to repent of our righteousness and to confess our need and to move toward his grace and then to experience the explosion of joy and discipline and hope that can be ours in Jesus Christ. And so as we sing together here, would you do that work? Would you come, Holy Spirit, be moving among us in that very way we pray in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen, and that's my encouragement to you. Come to Jesus. There's no better friend. Amen? But here's what he will do. He will... He will heal your heart, and then he will turn you around. And he will say, there are there are other sheep that are not yet a part of my fold, and I must bring them in, and he intends to use us, which is why he sends us now into the world, uh, armed with the same grace we've been shown, uh, to show grace to a world uh, that is desperate and hungry for such uh, love and acceptance and, and belonging. So receive these words of benediction. They are the promise that as he sends you, he promised that you do not go alone, but he goes with you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you, May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.